in our scripture reading this morning is from chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. I invite you to follow along. And if you do not have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one of the red pew Bibles in front of you. Again, Romans 3, 9 through 20. <clears throat> what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. God and Father, I just pray as we Come to your word. You would be with all of us. Um, Yeah, be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Convict us and teach us to acknowledge the truth about ourselves. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we start, just because I know that there's always worries when something like that happens, um, Sandy is fine for the time being. You'll hear any prayer request updates if there's anything going on, but... um, but Steve took her home, and yeah, keep them, of course, in your prayers, but she is all right for now, because I know that, you know, that's a heavy thing. With that said, speaking of heavy things, let's come to our text for this morning. Um, We've been preaching through Romans since January with a break for Lent, and we've covered some hard stuff, and part of the reason for that, well, part of the reason, honestly, is just that Christianity is hard, and scripture is hard, and um, there's a sense in which I feel like every sermon, every time we spend time in God's word, it should challenge us. But part of the reason that it's maybe been particularly hard is that starting in Romans 1.18 and running through our text for this morning, Paul has been making this one kind of overarching argument that we are all sinners, So in Romans 1, Paul argues that even if you're not a religious person, even if you don't believe in God, don't believe in sin, that you're still a sinner. You can go back and listen to those sermons if you want. And then in Romans 2, Paul makes the argument that if you are a religious person, you're also a sinner. In fact, you're probably a worse sinner in a sense because you don't have any excuse. And he sums up all of that argument over the last two chapters in our reading for today Uh, For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, which is leading to his conclusion, as it is written, 
there's no one righteous, not even one. And this whole argument he's been making for the last three chapters, that we're all sinners, it's leading somewhere, and it's meant to lead us to good news. Here's how Paul puts it in, um, in our text for next week. He says, There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Which is great. That sounds like a great conclusion to us, right? But for that to make sense, we have to get this part first. There's a symmetry between our appreciation of our sin, how bad we are, and our appreciation of God's grace and how much he loves us. It's like, like people in our world, we say, yeah, we believe in God's love, right? Almost, ask almost anybody, and they'll say, yeah, I believe in a loving God. But the problem with that is that their appreciation of that love is tiny because even more than they believe in God's love, people in our world believe that we are deeply lovable people, that we're awesome. It's like when, when I tell my daughter that I love her sometimes, she'll look at me and just be like, well, no, duh, of course you love me, right? <laughs> um, and that's how we feel. But that's not how God's love works in Scripture. God's love in Scripture is not about how lovable we are. In fact, the Bible's argument is that we are deeply unlovable. And God's love is huge and beautiful and glorious because even though we're unlovable, he loves and embraces and welcomes us. That's the argument that Paul's been making, that we're all terrible people. We're much worse than any of us thinks. And I know that some of us, as we walk through that, in our hearts we say, yeah, right, we're sure that that's not true. So two things first, if, if that's you, all right? First of all, being terrible does not exclude the idea that there's also something beautiful and wonderful about humanity, all right? That we have dignity and value. But the Bible insists somehow that our dignity and our evil both run side by side in our hearts, that we are wonderful and disastrous, that we are beautiful, terrible messes of creatures. And so as much as there is good in humanity, and Scripture acknowledges that, there is also much evil. Second, if that's you, if you just think, yeah, right, this can't be true of me, well, just hear me out this morning, all right? Maybe you're right, and maybe you are fine, But if this is true, if Paul's diagnosis that he lays out in these verses is accurate, then that's a big deal, and we really need to go back and re-examine some foundational things. So here's the deal. This passage is this summary and climax of three chapters worth of Paul discussing our sin. And I wrestled with how to do that justice in a sermon, with what we're supposed to do with that this morning, all right? to try to reflect that. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. This morning, I'm going to walk through this text and first walk through some things before this text and make the case we are all terrible. And that's it. And that's only half the story. That's why I wrestled with this. And we need the other half, right? We need the grace and love of Jesus. And next week, we're going to talk about that. As we go into the verses where Paul kind of proclaims that in the face of our sin, all right? But I feel like we can be so quick to rush there whenever we address sin that sometimes we don't really feel the weight of it. 
And I'm saying that now for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're not going to be here next week, go listen to that online, right? And I'll also be kind of posting on Facebook for people who aren't here this week. And if you want to mention that, like, these, you know, the, this week and next week's sermons really belong together. And if you're a visitor with us, I, um, I hope that you'll come next week or at least listen online because this is only half of the story. And there are a few of us, part of why I wrestle with how to handle this, there are a few of us who have especially tender consciences. I say us, this should be you. I'm not one of those people. But I know a few of you are, that you really wrestle deeply with guilt and shame all the time. And if that's you, right, um, know that there's that good news coming next week. And if you need to, just go ahead and fly there. I don't want to crush you if you've got that really, like, tender heart. My heart is lined with steel and Kevlar, right? My heart is not like that. It is often very hard to sin. And so I think that it's important for us to sit in it for a little bit. So what we're doing is a two-part sermon, okay? I guess that's what I'm calling what we're going to do. And so the, the sermon's title is God's Great Grace, but this morning is part one, title, We Are All Terrible. And the main points, if it helps, are one, I'm terrible, Two, everything is terrible. And three, no, seriously, it's even worse than you think. I'm not joking. Those are our three points for this morning. All right? Which we, we will laugh, but this is also serious stuff. So let's go. All right. First, I am terrible. So before we dig into this text in Romans, we need to just address the fact that we live in a world and that we live with hearts that don't ever really sit under the weight of our sin. And I feel like it's only fair, as I seek to have us sit under that weight, to start with myself as a test case, all right? So um, I know plenty of people that pretend like pastors are somehow better than other people or that they're not sinners, and I know plenty of pastors who like and spread that idea, but that is nonsense. Um, so here's what I did. I took a day a couple of weeks ago so that you can't identify it from any of the things that I listed. And, um, and I took a day, and it was not a day where I did anything particularly bad, kind of intentionally, but I just tried to keep a record of the various things that I did that Scripture would condemn as sin in that one day. So here's a partial list. 2 a.m., so not really even that day yet, um, one of the kids is crying, and I wake up, and I know Elizabeth wakes up too, but I stay very, very still because I want her to get cold and have to get out of bed rather than me. <laughs> and then at 6.30 a.m., I wake back up, and I think about getting up and making breakfast for Elizabeth because she got up with a crying kid that night, and instead I feel really good about thinking about it, and then I go back to sleep. And then my kids want me to play before I go to work um, and want to spend time with me. And instead, I just sit and read articles on my cell phone that I don't remember after I <laughs> shut it down. And then I brush someone off that day who clearly could have just used some conversation purely because I was trying to remember the title of a book that I had forgotten. And then I read a terrible news story about a tragedy overseas. And my first thought is, I'm glad that's happening to people like that and not people like me. And then I said something hurtful to someone just because I was being careless and wasn't thinking about what I was saying. And I told a lie, a little lie, but for literally no reason. It didn't get me anything, and I went ahead and lied. And at five different points, I thought, like, I should really pray for something, right, outside of my, like, normal daily prayer time. And one of those times I did. The other four times, I turned on the radio, did a crossword puzzle, turned on the television, and watched random videos on YouTube instead of praying. 
felt really proud and judgmental of how I'm not impatient like this lady standing in front of me at Chipotle. And then I felt really outraged and angry at how long it was taking that lady to fill up her soda cup. And my wife asked me to do things, and I say that I'll do them, and I don't. And I spend a great deal of the day complaining to myself, just generally feeling bitter about a variety of things. And that's not anywhere near a complete list. I left off some things for the sake of time and others because my heart is not really in a place where I want to talk about that in front of y'all. But stop, all right? Here's that list, and here's, here's where we can go wrong. So like, I feel like probably a third of us hear that list and are thinking, yeah, you're kind of a terrible person, Eric. And that's good. That is the response that you should have. Just be aware that you're probably in that same terrible boat. But, but, but you're right, all right? But the other two-thirds of us, I feel like, when you take that kind of average day, you think, man, that's not that bad. That sounds like my day, if I reflected on it. Some of you might even be thinking, that's kind of heroic or brave to be vulnerable like that. So stop it, all right, if that's you. So here's the thing that's happened in our modern world. We've become, it's become really hip. I don't know if you've noticed this in like the last 10 years. Kind of admit those sorts of failings that I just listed. I see articles on the internet all the time, right? These confessional things about how I'm a bad like son or father or daughter or mother or friend or employee or spouse or whatever, right? And millions of people share these articles and we cheer them for their brave authenticity. And sometimes those articles are great because some of the things that they confess are, are just bogus things that the world makes us feel guilty about, right? And that, that is good, But some of the things that those articles confess, they buy into this dangerous assumption. This assumption that basically says, well, look, I do this thing, and all of us do it, or most of us do it, and so it must be fine. Must not be a big deal. And that reasoning is just wrong. Morality is not a democratic system. And here's how I know that, because I can imagine 150, 175 years ago, right, if, if we had the internet, one of those articles, you know, being published that, that is just, you know what, guys, I'm a terrible slave owner. I beat my slaves to within an inch of their lives, and sometimes with the stress of running a plantation and planting all these balls, I forget to feed them. Look at how real and honest I'm going to be. And all the other plantation owners would have clicked like and share and said, OMG, I do that too. So glad you're brave enough to share it. Hashtag authentic. We use that idea of authenticity to say, Everything is, everyone's doing this. Everyone struggles with this. So don't feel bad about it. And like we said, sometimes that's true. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes we're all doing something terrible like that, and we're using the fact that everybody does it to make us feel like it's not a big deal. That's really what Paul argues in Romans 1. Those plantation owners that were beating their slaves back then, right? They were blind to it. They were people just like us who are somehow blind to this horrible evil that they were a part of. But if that can happen... If that can happen to people with something like slavery, and there are other examples in history, right, where we would look back and think, how could people do that? But everybody did. Then that means that there's a million ways that that could be true of us, too. And I don't just mean, like, one obvious thing. I feel like... um, I feel like we have a tendency, we hear that and we think of like the one thing, usually a political thing, that the other party does that's like slavery, right? But I'm not talking about that. I mean, like... 
that, that it's possible that every assumption that I have about the world is wrong, right? If people can be that wrong, then it could be that, like, everything I think about society and politics and family and all of that, that my great-grandchildren could look back and think, those monsters, how could they believe something like that? But it's possible that I could be completely blind to it. Or to get back to the point of that, that typical day that I described, it might seem normal and relatable. It probably does to a lot of us. But that's a day full of sin, full of selfishness and pride and hurtful words and flashes of anger, all things that the Bible condemns. And the fact that they're normal does not mean that I'm not a terrible person. It just means that we need to reassess how we weight the world. Well, let me get at it another way. Take that list of failings that I just gave, right? And now think about the big picture. Because the way maybe that you recognize that those normal sins, like the ones that I just listed, the way we recognize that they're evil um, is by looking at the world as a whole and recognizing that everything is terrible. All right? We're not to Romans 3 still, but point two, everything is terrible. And to get this an observation first. So I grew up in this little town in Nebraska, right? Everyone should cheer when I say that. But (laughs) I grew up in this little town in Nebraska, um, and it was just south of this feedlot that was, like, as big as the town. So seriously, like, here is Milford, Nebraska, and here is the feedlot up north of it, right? It's as big as the town is. And one of the consequences of that is that you could always tell when the wind was blowing out of the north, Right? Um, for obvious reasons. And as kids, we used to kind of joke about that, because that's the kind of thing that kids find funny. But I remember one day at recess, turning to one of my classmates named Kyle and saying, hey, Kyle, guess the wind is out of the north today, huh? And he just looked at me blankly. And the reason is because Kyle's family owned the feedlot, and he lived on it. And um, so he couldn't smell a thing, right? Because to him, that was just normal which we laugh about, but we all assume that this world as we experience it is average, right? That this is sort of like the way it's supposed to be, and bad stuff is sort of falling below the average of this world, and good stuff is just inching above the average of this world. But the problem we have to ask is what if it's not normal, right? What if we just can't smell the manure anymore? So just do a thought experiment with me. Just take some of the things that the Bible calls sin— and that it says that we shouldn't do, and not the big stuff, right? Not like blowing up buildings and stuff, but just the little normal stuff, like the stuff that I just listed for you that happened in that one day of my life. And think about what the world would be like if none of that sin was present. So take like harsh words, for example. Take insults. Every one of us has said hurtful things to other people. Every one of us has had people say hurtful things to us. Some of us in the last 24 hours, right, have said something hurtful or harsh to somebody else. So just, just picture a little kid. Have you ever seen this? There's this point, this like heartbreaking point where a little kid who grows up in a supportive family, right, where he doesn't get it at home, you see that kid like mocked and belittled for the first time. Have you ever watched that happen? Like, there's this freedom and exuberance. and I mean, little kids are great, right? They're goofy, and they dress funny, and they say crazy stuff, and they're just free and themselves until that day when somebody mocks them for it. And if you've ever seen that happen before your eyes, it's like that kid crumbles. You know what I'm talking about? They, like, collapse in on themselves suddenly 
in fear and in shame. And even weeks or months later, even as most of that freedom and exuberance has come back, they're a little more reserved than they were before those things were said to them. I mean, honestly, I sometimes wonder if a big part of what we call maturing and growing up is just the accumulated scar tissue of that happening over and over for years. Can you imagine a world where that never happened? Right? Where that, where that, where that five-year-old, the freedom that they have to just be themselves before the world, where 50-year-olds felt that same freedom and didn't have the accumulated scar tissue of decades of those hurtful words to make them curl up and hide themselves? I can't even imagine that world. And that's a world that's created by just the ordinary, normal kind of hurtful sin that I and all of us commit. And that's just one thing, right? Think about, I mean, forget, like, like, like sisters, women. Like, think about a world where you were never looked at in those ways or where you never had to wonder what was behind some, you know, some guy's interactions with you where you had never heard those words that I'm not going to say from the pulpit. But, I mean, you know those words, right? That demean and diminish you and what it means to be a woman. I mean, can you imagine how much different you would be if you never in your life had had to feel those things, those fears and that shame? And men, do you understand what it means that just by being normal men in our world, we've done that to sisters in Christ? Or think, about, think about a world where people just don't lie, right? I mean, do you realize that in a world without sin, a stranger could be walking by on the street and you could say, hey, can you watch my kids for a little bit? I need to run inside. And you would feel completely fine with that? Think about, think about the injustices in our world, right? I mean, like we live on a planet where there's enough food to feed 10 billion people. And there's 7 billion people. And almost a billion of them are starving. That's not just because of like horrific people out there. That's just because the normal way that all of us function somehow results in a world like that. And that's not meant to be a political statement, right? I mean, but... That's, all of that is just a product of our sin, our normal, everyday sin. Can you imagine a world where those sinful systems weren't there, where we all worked because work was good, and we were paid as much as our our employers could afford, and we um, gave to anyone who had need, and if we had need, we felt free to share it, and we all just poured ourselves into that. That's not the world we live in, but it's not the world we live in because... A bunch of people like us live lives like we do. And we could go on on and on, right? I sat with this part of today's message and just thing after thing, all these ordinary, little, everyday sins, right? A world without them, without pride, without envy, without lust, without selfishness, without anger, without greed. Just remove one of those things from our world and it's unimaginably good compared to the world that we actually live in. Next to that world, the world that people like us have created with our sin is hell. That's the point of all of this, right? Measured against people I know, I am a pretty morally average dude. I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not in any danger of going to prison for anything, right? I'm a pretty morally average dude. But morally average people like us created this world where we took God's perfect, you know, I mean, perfect creation, and we turned it into that kind of living hell. So I'm terrible, 
and everything is terrible because we're all terrible. (laughs) And now we're finally going to come to Romans 3. But here's why we had to say all of that up front. And I know that that's hard stuff, all right? Because only after getting a sense of that can we hear Paul's diagnosis and actually believe him. The Bible talks about the world in terms of sin. And sin is a word that we've lost almost all sense of. We think of sin in terms of like breaking kind of arbitrary rules or religious taboos. But the biblical idea of sin is that there is a good God who made a good world and he put us in charge of it and that we have spent the time since destroying every good thing that he has made by our selfishness and pride. That's the biblical idea of sin, that that I have done that and each of us have done that. Sin is this rebellion against God, this way that we just come and we mess everything up, and it has become this deep and deadly cancer that's grown tentacles into every part of our being and society. So seriously, it's even worse than you think. That's where we come to Romans 3 and to our last point. Seriously, it's even worse than you think. So in our passage this morning, Paul tries to summarize the reality of our sinful condition. So look at Romans 3. It's this long series of quotations, if you notice that. And that's because what Paul does is he takes these things that the Bible says at all different points about human sin, and he tries to bring them all together. This is like the Bible summarizing the Bible about our condition. Okay? So starting with verse 10, he does that. So let's look at verse 10. He says, As it is written, there's no one righteous. Not even one. So nobody is righteous. Not before God, not compared to what we're created to be. That's the important thing to recognize there, right? When I describe someone as righteous, I'm doing that comparison thing we were just talking about. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm more righteous than the guy standing next to me. But God is saying, no, that's not how it works. Like, you don't get to define righteousness, right? Any more than, like, a clock gets to define what time it is by comparing itself to other clocks, right? I mean, he says that the standard of righteousness exists. The standard exists, and we are measured by it. And compared to the perfect, selfless, never-wavering righteousness that God displays, all of us are a long, long way off. Then verse 11 There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. So it's not even just that nobody's actions are righteous. Nobody even fully understands what righteousness is or how to get there. Our brains can't even imagine it, like we said. It's like we drink dirty water every day and we call it champagne because it's the only thing that we've ever known and we have no sense of anything better. And no one seeks God. That doesn't mean... That there aren't some of us in our lives that go through periods of questioning and searching. The Bible acknowledges that elsewhere. But later in Romans, Paul will tell us that even if that's you, if you're going through that, that that's because God is already working to enable you to do that. That if he left us alone, the thought of seeking after God wouldn't even pop into our heads. It keeps coming in verse 12. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And again, that doesn't mean that people don't do things that we would call comparatively good, right? Because we do, but it means that, um, that none of us measured by God's standards are truly good. That none of the things we do are truly done simply out of love for him and to glorify him. 
Even the good things we do. I do good things out of selfish motives all the time. I do them because I want to impress people. Because I want to make myself feel better than other people. Because I want to get something in return. I do good things because I'm worshiping idols, trying, trying to get myself the stuff or the pleasure or the whatever that I desire. It's like, it's like that billionaire, right, who gives some money to charity, you know what I mean, and, you know, and gets the giant printout check and has the big like, press conference where he hands it over in his suit that's worth more than the check is for, and then he's, you know, he's at the gala that he throws to celebrate his donation afterwards, and he's drinking the wine that's more expensive than the check is for in front of the ice statue of him while he hits on that nice reporter lady, and then he goes home, and he looks out the window of his penthouse, and he says, I am such a generous person. I did something really good and selfless today, right? We're all like that. And we still aren't done. Verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So the stuff we say, we say terrible things to people and about people. And here's the thing about words. We excuse that because we feel like that's somehow less impactful than what we do. But actually, our words are more real, in a sense, and more impactful than our actions. I mean, there's a reason that God speaks and creation comes into being, right? I mean, if I punch someone in the face, well, I will probably go to jail. I mean, they will recover. Yeah, you know, they'll get a black eye or a bloodied lip or something, but give it a month or so and they'll be fine. But if you say something biting or cruel about somebody, that can wound them for their lives. We say hurtful things like that all the time. We can't take them back. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. So we hurt people. We even like it and rush into it. Sure, because of, you know, modern society, we don't spend a lot of time literally shedding blood. But, um, But we love to cut people down, right? In our minds, with our words, with our actions. I mean, and don't tell me we don't love bloodshed either. I mean, like 80% of our entertainment is it, right? But, but verse 16, ruin and misery mark their ways. There's no murder or hate or jealousy in nature. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, animals like eat each other, but it's this almost innocent thing, right? They're just, it's just instinctual. It's just, they need food. They need to survive. They're just operating off of those animal impulses. We hurt people because we like it, because it makes us feel powerful or good. There is no sin on deserted islands in the Pacific. Have you ever thought about that? There's no sin there until human beings arrive. And then ruin and misery follows. Verse 17, and the way of peace they do not know. We don't even know what the world should be like. Can't even imagine it. Peace in the Bible means more than just the absence of war. It means the world as it should be. A place where life flourishes and everything is good and sweet. And we can't even imagine what that kind of world would be like. And finally, verse 18 There's no fear of God before their eyes. All of this has ultimately happened because we've lost our sense of our place in relation to God. So the Bible talks a lot about fearing God. And whenever those verses come up, I feel like there's this little ditty that 
pastors like me are supposed to go on and that I instinctively want to go on, where we say, now by fear, the Bible doesn't actually mean that you should be afraid of God, right? Fearing God doesn't mean being afraid of him. And there's a sense in which that's true. There's a reason that that I think that's the instinct of every pastor, and that's because there's a sort of fear in our world that that is unhealthy. It's 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 like the fear of an abusive parent. Right? You fear them because they are arbitrary and unpredictable and inconsistent. You do some minor thing and you don't know whether they're going to laugh it off or whether they're going to explode and you're going to be in danger. Right? And it is true that we shouldn't fear God like that. God is not peevish. He's not inconsistent. He's not arbitrary. But we should be afraid of God. God is just and fair and good but he's not to be trivialized. He's infinitely bigger than us and infinitely better than us and completely outside our control. I remember right after we got married, Elizabeth and I went on, we went with her family to Africa for a wedding. It's a weird story, I'll tell you sometime. But while we were there, um, we were there for like a month and we went on this safari. And on this safari, we saw a lioness, right? A female lion out on the hunt. And this lioness, we're like 50 feet away from her, inside of this like military surplus jeep, and she's not paying any attention to us. She's looking the other direction, kind of just stalking across the grass. And I'm in this shotgun seat with an AK-47, an assault rifle sitting next to me, because the guide literally like holds it up and shows me where the safety is and says, in case you need it, and sets it down as we go on this safari, right? So, so the point at which I am 50 feet away from this lioness, who's paying no attention to me, inside of a metal box with a gun... I am terrified. Because you look at that lioness, and you know that there is a power there that's beyond your control, and that you have to respect. Power that you can't contain. God is like that, and in our sin, we've walked into the lion's den and started killing her cubs. When we talk about the unimaginably perfect world that we were talking about, do you remember that when we were talking about what would this world be like? How beautiful would it be if there wasn't sin? God made that world. He designed creation to sing in harmony and splendor, and he put us in charge of it. He named us the the managers, the overseers of that perfect and beautiful world. And we have stood before our creator and raised our middle fingers to the heaven and spent all of the time since then doing our best to burn it all to the ground. That is the story of our sin in scripture. And the absurdity of all of that is that we made a hell out of that perfect world that God created and we don't feel afraid. Do you feel that weight? Everything in in me wants to wave it away right now. Like I said at the beginning, everything in me wants to jump ahead to next week's reading um, to rush to the good news. But like we said at the beginning, we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about God's response next week, and it's beautiful and encouraging. But instead, for now, I would just, I'm going to leave you guys and myself with two questions, all right? Two questions to think about. The first question is, If you were God, and the world that you made, the people that you made, behaved that way, what would you do? I mean, really, don't give... We all are self-interested in that question, right? So we all, like, in our self-interested way, want to say that he would respond differently. But really, I mean, 
you know, when, when I see particularly evil acts of abuse, right, or tyranny or evil in our world, my heart cries out for justice, right? My heart cries, cry, wants blood. It wants that thing to be destroyed. And if that's how we respond to that sort of thing, when in truth we are all the abusers and destroyers of this world that God made, and of people that God made, then wouldn't we respond to ourselves that way if we were God? The fact that God doesn't do that, the fact, like that fact alone, should make us unbelievably grateful. Paul, um, next week, he's, he's going he's to talk about the idea of the patience of God. And that's what Paul means, right? That we should be grateful, not just for Jesus and salvation and stuff, although we're going to get there. We should just be grateful that God hasn't annihilated people like us. I should, we should be grateful that the sun is rising. I should be grateful that like fire doesn't just fall from the sky on me. Because in a real sense, compared to God's perfectness, that's what I deserve. It's nothing but pure grace that means that he's dealt with me differently, even up to now. So that's the first question. If you were God, how would you respond to people like us that you created rebelling against you? And then the second question is how on earth... If we believe the Bible, if we say that we believe what this book says, right, how on earth can we trust in our own salvation to save us? That's Paul's point in all of this. That's why he's been going through this in Romans. Because as he says it in verse 20, therefore, because of all of this, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin." point of Christianity is not to make us feel good about ourselves. It's not to make us into good people. People use it that way, but that's not what it's for. The point of Christianity is to make us recognize our sin and make us put our hope in Jesus Christ. Now, yes, as we do that, over the course of our lives, we are actually going to grow in true righteousness. It is true that we're being called towards righteousness and even grown in righteousness. But as soon as we start making Christianity about that righteousness, about being good people, we lose Jesus. It's like, I'm about to borrow from a C.S. Lewis quote and change it here, but if Christianity was like a bow and an arrow, right? The question is, what are we aiming at? Because if we make the target of Christianity us feeling good, us being good, us being better than other people, if we make that our target, then we're going to miss that, and we're going to miss Jesus. But if we make the target Jesus, then somehow not only are we going to receive Jesus, but we're going to find that we start getting that true righteousness, but never in a way that turns us away from making Jesus our goal. Never in a way that makes us stop confronting our own sin. No one will be declared righteous by works of the law, Paul says. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So spend some time reflecting on those two questions this week. On the grace of God in simply being patient with us. And on the reality that we are all sinners. And Christianity is not meant to lead us to something other than that. And seriously, please come back next week or listen online if you're not here or something because this is only half the story and it's leading us towards the beautiful proclamation of God's grace in Jesus. But we're not going to go there yet. Would you pray with me?
Father God, I am a sinner, deeply in need of Christ's mercy. I pray that you would forgive my sin and our sin. Help us to just be convicted of it and cast ourselves on Jesus so that we might grow to be more like him. Amen. So we're doing something a little bit different. If you didn't notice, we didn't have a time of confession um, earlier in the service, which we usually do. And that's because, um, well, A, because I didn't think anyone would want to sing a hymn after um, walking through Romans 3, 9 through 20. But also because I thought that this text would actually be a very useful way for us to confess our sin. So we're going to have a time of confession. There's a couple of periods of silent confession written into it this time. And then we will hear God's word sending us forth. So if you would pray with me, Father, this we confess, there's none who's righteous, not even one. None of us truly understands, none of us fully seeks God. We all in our sin have turned away and become worthless. None of us does good. Father, this we confess. Our throats are open graves. Our tongues lie. Our lips drip with poison. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark our ways. We do not know the path of peace. Father, this we confess, there is often no fear of God before our eyes. Father, hear our prayer. We see in your perfect law our failures. May all of our mouths be silent and all the earth held accountable to God. None of us will be declared righteous before you by your law. All it does is remind us of our sin. Help us to recognize this fact and draw our hearts towards Jesus so that we might hope in him. Amen. Amen. So thank you for worshiping with us this morning, if you're visiting. I will reiterate once more, if you're not coming back next week, please at least listen online, because I know that this is heavy, but it's also true and important stuff for us to walk through. Um, Please do join us. There is a cake for the Overmeyers out in the fellowship hall. 
and make sure to send them off with the Lord's blessings and come back in here in a few minutes if you would like to hear a little bit more about what they've been doing. There's also flower sales to pick up, all the other stuff going on. But I'm not using the one um, that we had in our bulletin, but as I reflected on like how do we go out with that on our hearts, reflecting on that this week with a good word from the Lord. This is the passage I found myself thinking of from 1 Timothy 1. So take this as the Lord's blessing. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in his name.